A very, very warm welcome to the LSE. My name is Zulum Alamoga and I'm your chair for this evening. I'm the current general secretary of uh, the LSE Students' Union. And the first black man to be general secretary is Black History Month, so we have to say it. Thank you so much. Thank you. And of course, we have the wonderful education officer, Martha Oja from the Students' Union, and Mustafa Briggs as well with us this evening. Um, so yeah, let's, uh, let's go. Okay, great. Hi everyone, my name is Martha, and like Zoom said, I'm the Education Officer and Trustee at LSE Students' Union. I'm also the lead on all of our Black History Month events, and I'd like to, before we begin, just say a huge thank you to a couple of people who, without which, our programme wouldn't be happening and this event would be happening. First, a huge thank you to LSE, um, Andrew Young, the Chief Operating Officer for funding Black History Month for another year. A huge thank you to the Islamic Society, um, who this event is in collaboration with, and a special mention to Waleed, our BME Officer as well, for all his help and effort on this. Huge thank you to Zulum for chairing this event. Um, if he didn't step in, this again would not be happening today. And of course, a huge thank you to Mr. for accepting my invitation. And I'm really happy to welcome him back to LSE again for a second year. If you guys didn't know, he was here last year at what was our, one of our most well-attended events. And it made sense that he come back as part of the LSE Public Lecture Series. Um, so by way of introduction, for those of you who don't know him, Mr. is a graduate of the University of Westminster, where he read Arabic and international relations. His undergraduate undergrad dissertation was um, focused on literature and literacy in West Africa. Um, Mustafa started an MA in translation at SOAS with a focus on Arabic and Islamic texts before going on to Al-Hazar University in Cairo, Egypt. Today, Mustafa will take us on a journey through the Americas, exploring the relationship between blackness and Islam. Um, can we please give a round of applause to Mustafa? Hello, everybody, and salam alaikum to all of those in the room. So thank you once again for bringing me back. Clearly, last year wasn't that bad if you decided to bring me back for the second time. And um, before I start, actually, how many people attended last year's Beyond Bilal lecture? Okay. How many people have attended it in general? Okay. All right, so <clears throat> I might have to... Okay, so this is a continuation of the Beyond Bilal uh, lecture series that I did last year. And last year, I explored the relationship between black history and Islam. And this year, after taking that tour, after taking that lecture on tour through the Americas, I went to North America in February, March, and again, I just came back. Um, I realized that the history of Islam in America was very, very deep, and it deserved its own presentation and its own research. So it's very difficult to kind of summarize hundreds of years of history into a one-hour lecture. And so I'm going to encourage you guys to bring out your notepads or your phones, make notes, and take down information that I present in this lecture for your own personal research so you can research it further in your own time, because this is going to be a very intensive crash course into the history of the Islam in the um, history of Islam in the Americas. Um, I like to have lectures where I interact with the audience for two reasons. The main reason is that I don't want you guys to feel like you're just stuck there listening to me talk for an hour. And the second reason is that I'll be asking you questions so that every now and again I can take a sip of water because I talk too much. <laughs> so without further ado, inshallah, I'll start my presentation. Do we have one of the clicky things? I call them clicky things because I'm a grandpa. I don't know what they're actually called. If not, I'll just start. <clears throat> so, as those who attended Beyond Bilal last year would know, I always like to start my lectures with a few facts and figures. Um, before I go into it, actually, 
Does anybody know any facts or figures about Islam in the Americas in general? I don't like shy audiences. I'll bully you guys. <laughs> if I don't get answers, I'm warning you from now. If I don't get answers when I ask volunteers, I'll point at people randomly to respond to my question. So be on point, yeah? So Islam is the most widely practiced religion in the United States after Christianity and Judaism. And American Muslims are very diverse, with the African-American Muslims making up 25% of the Muslim populations, making them the largest group of Muslims on the continent. <clears throat> Many people equate the spread of Islam amongst African-Americans with the rise and fall of the nation of Islam and the civil rights movement, and key figures such as Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. These two heroes here. So <clears throat> a lot of people, when they've been booking me, they've been telling me, yeah, we want you to come and give the Malcolm X talk. We're looking forward to the Malcolm X talk. How many of you guys are looking forward to a detailed biography of Malcolm X? <laughs> None? That's why you guys are at LSE. <laughs> many people think I have come here to speak about Malcolm X himself. And although he is a great figure in the history of Islam, and he's one of the most key figures in terms of Islam in the Americas, I felt like not enough attention is given to Islam in the Americas before him and the context that led up to his appearance. And so that's what I'm going through with this presentation. But before I start, well, actually, this is where it does start. I'm going to ask you guys, how long has Islam been in the Americas? You can guess. There's no right or wrong answer. Well, there is a right or wrong answer, but I'm not expecting you guys to know it. Just guess. Give me a guess. I just want to... Over 100? Over 100? 500. 500? 400? Higher or lower? I would say since the beginning of slavery. Since the beginning of slavery. Okay. So I'm going to ask you guys if you recognize... So, okay, yeah, that was the question. I haven't practiced this lecture before, so. <laughs> Does anybody recognize this image? Yes. Mansa Musa. For those of you that did not attend Beyond Bilal, Black History of Islam last year, who is Mansa Musa? Yes. He was a Muslim king from Mali. Does anybody know what year he was the king of Mali? 1300. 1300s, exactly. So he is famous for his Hajj pilgrimage that he went on in the year 1320-something. <laughs> <laughs> and he was the emperor of the Mali Empire, which was the largest empire in West Africa at the time. So I've just come back from America, and you know, in America, their geography is terrible. So I'm hoping you guys have better geography than our cousins over across the pond. What countries can you see here? that are included in the Mali Empire. There's no countries there on the map in the modern term that we know because this is a pre-colonial empire before they decided to carve it up and share it amongst themselves. <clears throat> but I'm going to give you there are about five countries that were modern-day West African nations that were included in the Mali Empire. Gambia, Senegal. No, not Niger. No, Mali. Just Makes guessing. sense, right? Mali Empire, yeah? <laughs> Gambia. Gambia. Senegal. Any Gambians in the house? 
Okay, I'm Gambian too. That's, that's us. Okay. Cool. The originators of jollof rice. So we'll talk about <coughs> So it contained Gambia, Senegal. I see what you guys did there. You read this. It's okay. Mali, parts of Guinea, and even spread into Niger, bits of Niger. And so this was, in the 13th century, the economic superpower of the world because 75% of the world's gold at the time came from Mali. And Mansa Musa had been estimated by Forbes magazine to be the richest man who has ever lived because his net worth, due to his control of the gold in the Mali Empire, was over 800 billion US dollars in today's equivalent. So what's his connection with Islam in the Americas? And that's something that not many people know. Yes. Amen. So this section of my... Yeah, I got the clicky thing. Yeah! <laughs> it's about to be lit. So <laughs> this section of the lecture is called They Came Before Columbus. Because many people equate the spread of Islam in the Americas to slavery or to the civil rights movement. But Mansa Musa gives us an interesting account of how he became the king of the Mali Empire that ties into the history of, the Islam, of Islam in the Americas that a lot of people don't know about. So Mansa Musa was interviewed in Egypt and he stopped over in Egypt on his way to Mecca and spent so much gold and gave away so much gold that he depressed the Egyptian economy for 10 years. The first credit crunch. <coughs> and Omari quotes Mansa Musa as follows. So Omari is a scholar from Egypt that interviewed Mansa Musa. And he said, the ruler who preceded me, who was his brother Mansa Abu Bakr, did not believe that it was impossible to reach the extremity of the ocean that encircles the earth, meaning the Atlantic Ocean. You know, they believed, well, anyway. And he wanted to reach that end. So he wanted to reach the end of the Atlantic Ocean. He was on the West African side, and he was looking across the ocean, wondering what could be on the other side. As we know today, it was America. <clears throat> and so he equipped 200 boats full of men and many others full of gold, water, and provisions sufficient enough for several years. And he ordered the chief admiral not to return until they had reached the extremity of the ocean or if they, until they had exhausted their provisions and water. They set out and, in their, and their absence extended over a long period and at last only one boat returned. But Manta Abu Bakr did not give up. And so then he ordered 2,000 boats to be equipped for him and for his men, and 1,000 more for water and provisions. And he confirmed on me, Mansa Musa, the regency during his absence and departed with his men on an ocean trip, never to return or give another sign of life. So Mansa Abu Bakr left West Africa, and you know, the Mali Empire was run by the Mandinka tribe. So they were Mandinka people, and their language was Mande, <coughs> or Mandinka, or Mende, as it's known today in West Africa. Any Mandinkas in the house? Okay. <laughs> so this is your history. <laughs> What's your surname? Sumari. Sumari, okay, yeah. Real Mandinka. Okay. So, 2,000 boats full of people set off across the Atlantic never to return. And we have different scholars, some of them from reputable universities, not YouTube conspiracy theorists, that have ideas as to the first Muslims that arrived on the shores of the Americas. So Leo Weiner of Harvard University wrote a controversial book called Africa and the Discovery of America. So this is where you write down your notes to look for this book in your spare time. Let me see if they got the laser. Yes, we've got the laser. <laughs> Africa and the discovery of America. These things excite me, I apologize. 
So he said there are several loca several locations from which Negro traders spread into the into the two Americas, meaning North and South America. And Columbus himself recorded in his narrative of the third voyage. We all know who Christopher Columbus is, right? The person that discovered the Americas. <laughs> even though there were people already there when he discovered it, <laughs> number one, and even though he never actually reached America, but he landed on the island that he named Hispaniola, which is now known today as Haiti and the Dominican Republic. So when he spoke about the island of Santiago, he said, canoes had been found which start from the coast of Guinea, meaning West African coast, and navigate to the West with merchandise. So these people already knew that Muslim traders, African traders, were already traveling to the Americas before the arrival of Columbus. And so we have a report that reports Columbus as saying, the Indians of Española, which is now known as Haiti and the Dominican Republic, have said that they have come from the South and Southeast, black people who have the tops of their spears made of a metal which they called guanine, which is made of 32 parts, 18 parts gold, 6 parts silver, and 8 parts copper. This is interesting because guanine was the Mande word or the Mandinka word for gold. And this way that they did their spears was the exact same way that the Mandinka warriors in West Africa did their spears. And we know the Mali Empire was a Muslim kingdom. <coughs> in Panama, one other expert also says, today the, ex the indigenous people of Panama are under two names, the Mandinkas and the Tule. And you know, the Mandinkas were the same tribe that were there in West Africa. And then we also have another report that a king who was there in Panama told, told some of the, I don't want to call them discoverers because they didn't discover anything, but the people that invaded their island, that people of color live quite near them and they were constantly at war with them. And these blacks were entirely like the blacks of <coughs> Guinea. <coughs> Peter Mata also adds to this and says, it is believed such blacks came a long time ago from Africa with the attention of robbing and having been shipwrecked, established residence in those mountains. And in the southwest, near the Nicaraguan border, another group of blacks are reported, and they're known as the Jaras and the Guabas. And those are common West African surnames, Jara and Kaba. <coughs> She's like, hmm, because she probably has cousins that have those surnames. <laughs> and we also have another report that says a tribe of Almamis inhabited the Honduras, having preceded by little the arrival of Columbus there. Do you know what the word Almami means? What does it mean? Imam? It's an imam, so it's the Mandinka word for imam. So you can already see in all of these reports dating back before Columbus and around Columbus's time, they're already reporting the presence of people who identified themselves as Mandingas <coughs> or Almamis, etc., in the region. <coughs> and another father, Francisco Guys, in 1775, ran across a group of black people living, behind the, living beside the Zuni Indians in New Mexico, so that's in the middle of America. And the Indians and blacks spoke different languages, and according to the Indians, the blacks were the earliest inhabitants of the land. And Columbus, again, in his report of his third voyage, noticed that the Indians brought handkerchiefs of cotton, very symmetrically woven and worked in colors like those brought from Guinea, from the rivers of Sierra Leone, and of no difference. And he was surprised and remarked, but they cannot communicate with the latter, West Africans, because from here to Guinea is a distance of more than 800 leagues. This is the same miscalculation that made him think he was going to India when he arrived <laughs> in America. 
And Columbus also made reference to another cloth called the Almazar, which was a cloth that the Moorish traders, and as we know, Moors was a term used by Europeans to describe North African Muslims, Spanish Muslims, and even West African Muslims, who they all gathered together under one banner and called them Moors. And Islam actually spread in West Africa through trade that the West African kingdoms were having with North African kingdoms. So they had a lot of cultural links between them, which is something I discussed in Vion Villar last year, which you should have came to if you didn't. <coughs> and so Ferdinand, his son, called the native cotton garments breech cloths of the same design and cloth as the shawls worn by Moorish women in Granada, which is the south of Spain. And Hernan Cortes, another infamous Spanish conqueror, said of the dress of the Indians that the clothing which they wear is like long veils, very curiously worked, and the men wear breech cloths about their bodies and large mantles painted in the style of Moorish draperies. So these are all of the people that we know as the discoverers of North America, describing the presence of people who similarly seem to have links with West Africans and North Africans already before their arrival. And that brings me to this. So <clears throat> a lot of people try and discredit all of these claims and say that, well, you know, there's no real proof that Muslims were there before Columbus, and there's no real proof that it happened. I feel like the evidence that I did quote did, does give you a kind of indication of what was happening. But something that was very real and very, very essential to the history and the spread of Islam in North America is something connected to this picture. So does anybody know what this picture represents? It's from Roots. Who said that? Prize at the end. <laughs> and so put your hand up if you've heard of the movie Roots. Okay, so that's most of the crowd. Can somebody volunteer to tell people who haven't heard of the movie Roots what the movie Roots is about? I pick you. <laughs> yes, you, sir. Yeah. Put oh. <laughs> your hand up again if you've seen Roots. <laughs> uh, now half of it. You seen it, yeah? Have you seen it? Or are you just leaving it? Oh, whoever speaks. Go on, go on, go on. You seen wait, Roots, wait, right? Wait for the mic. Wait for the mic. Okay, so we put can it all hear to the you. brother at the back with the locks. Yeah, yeah. Now give it, wait, the mic's coming, don't worry. <laughs> giving away my age here, but I remember seeing it when I was a kid and that's uh, Kunta Kente. Kunta Kente. Okay, so tell me a bit about the story of Roots as I pour my water. Well, it's just following, following uh, the, the, um, the capturing of the character Kunta Kente, the main sort of like uh, protagonist, and his experience when they arrive in the Americas. Okay, so where did Kunta Kinte come from? Gambia. Gambia, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Let me plug this because my auntie owns the tour company that can take you to his village. <laughs> Google West Africa tours, book a trip to Gambia, you can see that, you know, support the family business. But that's not the point. So Kunta Kinte was a slave taken from the Gambia. And his descendant, Alex Haley, who was also the author of the autobiography of Malcolm X, wrote the, the story of his ancestor, Kunta Kinte, who was a Muslim. And in the book, has anybody read the Roots book? So in the book, he describes his grandfather as an Islamic scholar called Kairabo Kunta Kinte, who came from Mauritania into Gambia and settled amongst the population. As was common, there was a lot of intermarriage between North Africans and West Africans in the pre-colonial pre period in West Africa. So Kunta Kinte has a connection to this woman here. 
Has anybody heard of Fatima Al-Fihri? Yes. Tell me who Fatima Al-Fihri is. She's the founder of the first university in Morocco. In Morocco, in Fez, the Karaween. And it's the first university in the world, and it's the oldest degree-granting university in the world. So <clears throat> Moroccans say Karaween is the first. Egyptians say Azhar is the first. I go to Azhar, but I like Morocco, so I don't know who to side with. But the fact is that she founded this university in which year? 800 something. Guys, feel free to Google. But does anybody know about a connection between Kunta Kinte here and Fatima Fihri here? That's why you came to this lecture. So Kunta Kinte's grandfather was from a prominent tribe in West Africa called the Kunta tribe. And that's where his name actually came from, Kunta. And the Kuntas were the descendants of a famous person called Uqba bin Nafi', who was a companion of the Prophet Muhammad and one of the people who, along with his uncle Amr bin As, led to the spread of Islam in North Africa. So his uncle Amr bin As conquered what we now know today as Egypt and established a capital on the banks of the river Nile called Fustat, which later grew and became Cairo. His nephew Uqba bin Nafi traveled even further into Tunisia and established his own city called Karawan. And Fatima Fihri is his descendant. And so when she established the university called Masjid al-Qarawiyin, it means the masjid of the people from Karawan. The Kunta tribe are also the descendants of Uqba bin Nafi, and they traveled from Karawan through West Africa spreading Islam until the grandfather of Kunta Kinte traveled and settled in Gambia. So they are, in fact, distant cousins. And so this shows another face of slavery and the transatlantic slave trade that many of the West Africans taken by the slavers and sent to the Americas and sent to the Caribbeans were in fact slaves of Muslim origin who had a long legacy and connection with Islam. Because not many people know that Kunta Kinte is descended from one of the direct companions of the Prophet Muhammad And so this next section of my presentation is called The Quran in Chains. <coughs> so this is modern West Africa as we know it. We see Senegal, Gambia, Guinea here, Sierra Leone, Liberia, etc. And all of these nations were nations that were, whose borders were drawn by Europeans as they split Africa up and decided which parts of Africa they wanted to colonize. But before the colonization of West Africa, there were many kingdoms and empires across the region. And so this is an example of what the map should have looked like in 1860 during the height of the West African um, and the transatlantic slave trade. And we can see, for example, the Sokoto Khilafa in northern Nigeria, which I spoke about in Beyond Bilal, as a kingdom established by a Muslim scholar called Usman Danfodio. This is where you guys write your notes. And spread, and it still exists today in northern Nigeria. The structure of the Sokoto Khilafa with their sultans and their emirs still exists in present Nigeria today. And so half of Nigeria's population are Muslim, meaning over 100 million people, and a lot of them are part of the Sokoto Khilafa. Anyone that's from Nigeria knows about Sokoto. <coughs> Kanem Borno was also one of the early empires, and they received Islam in the 700s during the time of. Uh, Omar bin Abdul Aziz, who was the grandson of Omar bin al-Khattab. And we have a lot of other kingdoms such as Sultanate of Air. Um, the Ashanti Empire wasn't Muslim, but had a lot of Muslims in the empire. And all of these empires here, the Tukulur Empire, 
Wasulu Empire, Futa Jalon, Kabu, and even Jollof here in Senegal and Gambia, where Jollof rice comes from, <laughs> were all majority Muslim kingdoms. And so the estimates that say 10 to 20% of the slaves taken were Muslim are probably false. We can even go as far as saying 40 to 50% of the slaves that were taken, if they were not Muslim, they came from areas that had strong Muslim influence. And so I'm going to tell the story of a few of these slaves and how they affected the spread of Islam and the presence of Islam in the North American region. This is the island of what was known then Hispaniola. This was discovered by Christopher Columbus and it was ruled by his son Ferdinand after his death. And this was one of the first places where slavery was established in the Caribbean and plantations were established and slaves were brought in from West Africa to work on these plantations. It also became the first island to receive independence, as anybody who knows the history of Haiti, who knows the history of Haiti? People are not putting their hands up because they know I'm going to pick at them. <laughs> Please, yeah, I see you ducking. I got the point. I got the laser. <laughs> Please tell us a bit about the history of Haiti. The mic's on its way. We got one. Are you from Haiti? No. Okay. Coming. I mean, I think her voice projection is good, but I mean, um, <clears throat> um, I think it was 1791 was the beginning of the Haitian Revolution, which established Haiti as the um, first free slave state. So it was the first free slave state in the Western world. And this legacy of revolution and overthrowing their masters started earlier in 1522, when on Christmas Day, 20 enslaved Muslim Africans used machetes to attack their Christian masters on the island of Hispaniola, which was governed by the son of Christopher Columbus at the time. And that was the first recorded slave revolt in the New World. So these slaves were Wolof people from the Jolof Empire in Senegambia, the land is called Jolof, the people are called Wolof. She can confirm. <laughs> but these slaves were Wolof people from Senegambia region, and the uprising was quickly suppressed. And with this uprising, that's when King Charles V, I think that's a five, of Spain, <laughs> started to force conversions of slaves as they arrived, and he started to forbid any slaves suspected of Islamic learnings coming, from, coming to the island, because he felt that the Islamic heritage that they had and you know they had just finished defeating the Moors in Spain and driving them out he felt that Islam was a religion that taught the slaves to revolt and rebel against their Christian masters so we can see that the first revolution that led to the spirit of Haiti becoming independent was inspired by these Muslim slaves from the Senegambian region um, and it's called the revolt of Hispaniola and then we also see documents like this, because not only were the West African slaves Muslim, but a lot of them were scholars and learned people who had memorized the Quran by heart and could speak fluent Arabic and read and write in classical literary Arabic. I spoke about this in Beyond Bilal, and I spoke about the fact that Mansa Musa, upon his return from Hajj, started many institutes of higher learning across West Africa, such as places like Timbuktu and Jenne, who Timbuktu in its height, the Sankore University, which was established in 1327, in its height had the largest library in Africa. 
700,000 manuscripts and more, and they housed over 25,000 students who studied not just religious sciences, but secular sciences as well. So, for example, there was a document from the Sankore Masjid, which is a 700-year-old document teaching mathematics in classical Arabic that the West Africans were using. And when it was translated into French and sent to Sorbonne University, which is the equivalent of, I don't know, Oxford or Cambridge or LSE in France, they, they looked at the document and they said the level of maths being taught in the Sankore Mosque 700 years ago was equivalent to the second year of their mathematics degree program, which is one of the hardest mathematics degree programs in the world. And so we can see that these people were not just slaves, but they were scholars, princes, and noble people. And this is a portion of a prayer written in Arabic by a slave in an area called Bahia. And Bahia is in the east of Brazil. <clears throat> so why Bahia is important when talking about the history of Islam in the Americas is because Bahia was one of the places that had the largest amounts of slaves in the history of slavery. Most of the slaves taken from Africa were not sent to North America, but they were actually sent to Brazil. And Brazil, as we know, has the largest population of Africans outside of the African continent. And these slaves in Bahia, coming from a lot of different places in West Africa, speaking languages like Wolof, Mande, Hausa, Nupe, and Yoruba, all gathered together despite their ethnic differences, and the unifying factor between them was the fact that they were all Muslims and could speak Arabic. So the nature of slavery in Bahia and in Portugal was slightly different from in North America, as the slaves had a bit more freedom to interact with free people, and they had a bit more freedom <coughs> to follow their own dress codes and their own dietary restrictions, and they weren't forbidden from reading and writing. And so we see that a lot of the slaves in Bahia set up Quranic schools and Arabic schools and used to write letters and write books and teach, with each, other, and teach each other and founded a Muslim community there in Bahia uh, during the early days of the slave trade. <coughs> so this is significant because they have many documents like this document written here, and they also led a revolt called, in 1835, called the Male Revolt. So this is where you guys write again for your own personal research. So <coughs> the slaves knew about the Haitian Revolution, and some of them wore necklaces with the image of, pre of the president who had declared the Haitian independence. And in 1835, these Muslim slaves, these group of Muslim slaves, under their imams that were teaching them, decided to rise up against the colonial masters and kill them and try and gain their freedom. So they were defeated, and um, because the Portuguese were fearful that the state of Bahia would follow the example of Haiti, 16 of these slaves were sentenced to prison, four of them were sentenced to death, eight were forced to work for free labor, and 45 of them were sentenced to flogging. But 200 of the remainder of these surviving, of the leaders of the revolt, were deported back to Africa. And they resettled in places like Benin and Nigeria. And that led to the creation of a culture or group of people who have, so anyone that's familiar with Nigeria, you'll see sometimes people have surnames like Silva or Santos, etc. Mm -hmm. They are the descendants of these slaves from Bahia that were sent back. And this is a trend that we see a lot of Muslim slaves being sent back to Africa during the slave trade, which I'm going to talk about in the following slides. So everybody, I'd recommend re research the Malay Revolt as well. And fearing that the example might be followed, the Brazilian authorities started to now make an intensive effort to force people to convert to Catholicism 
and remove the, uh, remove the memory of Islam. So everybody, <clears throat> I want you guys to Google an author called Habib Akande, H-A-B-E-E-B space A-K-A-N-D-E, because he has done an in-depth research into the presence of Islam in Brazil and the history of these um, Brazilian Muslims. He also has a few books about sex and erotology, so don't get the two mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> But if you need that book, buy it. <laughs> and um, this African Muslim community was not erased overnight because as late as 1910, there were over 100,000 African Muslims living in Brazil. So read Habib's book to get more information on that. And this next section goes into further depth about these kind of slaves who were also scholars and also from reputable Muslim families. And I call this from Mali to Mississippi and Timbuktu to Tennessee. As you can tell, I like alliteration. <laughs> <laughs> so Mali, as we spoke about earlier, was one of the most powerful empires in West Africa. And a lot of the Islam that we find in West Africa was due to the influence of the Mali Empire. The territories that they ruled over directly obviously came under their rule and sent many of their students to study in the higher institutes of learning, such as the Sankore University, etc. And places that are not under direct influence due to trade relations also became affected by Islam. So, for example, in Nigeria, the Yoruba part of Nigeria receives Islam from Malian traders who come in in the 1500s to trade with Yoruba people and settle there. And a lot of them were not just traders, but they were traditional healers as well. And so the kings used to frequent them to find cures for diseases or you know, spiritual powers that they couldn't find in other places. And a lot of them started to convert to Islam through that. So even if you look at a lot of traditional Yoruba kings, a lot of them are Muslim. <coughs> So Timbuktu was the capital of the Mali Empire, and we see slaves coming from this legacy being transferred across the Atlantic Ocean, but still maintaining their Muslim identity. Um, and there were hundreds of thousands of slaves like this, but I've brought the case study of just a few to give an example. Slaves such as this man, Ayuba Suleiman Jalo. Has anybody heard of him? Tell me a bit about him. Um, what I can remember Yeah. He was um, from like a respected family. Um, if I can remember, I'm not sure if it's royalty or something like that. Mm. And then he became a slave, but he was very, very well educated before. Mm -hmm. And um, <coughs> he became free, I can't remember how. And then he became a well respected society again. Yeah, so I'll. Like a transformation. Yeah, so I'll fill in a couple of the gaps, inshallah. So this man was called Ayuba Suleiman Jalo, and this is one of the only pictures that were drawn, portraits drawn, of a slave, and this was drawn in the 1700s. So Ayuba Suleiman Jalo, if I'm not mistaken, was born in the year 1701 in a town called Bundu, which his grandfather had founded. So his grandfather was a respected scholar and chief, and he founded his own village. And so <coughs> Ayuba Suleiman grew up as a prince of sorts, and he sought higher education, some say even in Timbuktu. So he went to university, had the equivalent of a university education, and he had memorized the whole Quran, and he was fluent in Arabic. So when he was captured, he was captured in the 1730s and taken to America. And during his time as a slave, 
he always used to sneak off into the forest when it was time for Salah. So he'll go and pray his five daily prayers in the forest. At one time, he was found by a child and humiliated in the forest. And so he decided to run away. That was in 1731. And he was recaptured. And when he was recaptured, he was taken back into slavery. And they discovered that he could read and write Arabic and was fluent in Arabic. <clears throat> so he, they asked him why he had run away. And he told the story of the child humiliating him where he, where he was trying to pray. And so his new slave master actually gave him an area for him to be able to pray his five daily prayers as they saw him as a valuable asset to the plantation because of his knowledge of how to rear animals and how to farm, etc. And he f became, he, he, during his new, being in this new environment, he met somebody who he had met in Africa previously. So this person that he had met, his person's surname was Cox, had been stranded on the coast of West Africa and was the first white man to arrive in his town of Bundu. And so Ayuba had taken, his family had taken this white man in and the white man actually was giving him lessons in English. So when he saw him again in America, it was kind of like a coincidence or fate, as you can say. And this man was trying to campaign for him to be freed. And so he encouraged him to write letters back to his family in West Africa. And he took these letters and this letter was intercepted by the head of the Royal West African Company, which was the company that were in charge of buying and selling slaves. The head of the company, seeing that he was writing in Arabic, sent, <laughs> sent the letter to Oxford University where it was translated, and then he decided to purchase Ayuba for £45 and send him all the way to London. So when he arrived in London in the 1700s, he was a member of high society at the time. He was still a slave, but he was allowed to mix with lords and ladies. He even had this picture painted of him in his natural you know, West African clothes. And he was hired by the British Library to sort through their Arabic documents. Yeah. <clears throat> so he managed to campaign for his own release from slavery. And he was sent back to West Africa and he died as a free man in his own country. So this is one of the slave narratives that we don't usually hear about, but it was a very, very significant thing at the time. And he became very famous. So this is an extract of one of his writings where he talks about himself and his... And he actually has a biography, so he's one of the first people to write a slave narrative. Other educated slaves were not as lucky as Ayuba. So this is another one called Omar ibn Said. I'll scroll back to here so you guys can take pictures and write down his name. Research him in your own spare time. <coughs> and there's another slave here called Omar bin Said. So Omar bin Said was also from either Senegal or Guinea, and he was captured. And he was a Hafiz, so he had memorized the Quran, and he was also fluent in Arabic. He lived his entire life in slavery. He was captured in his 30s, and he passed away when he was 96 years old. But when he passed away, people had assumed that he had converted to Christianity as he used to go to church and he appeared as the other slaves Christian and having abandoned his previous culture. But upon his death and even before his death, 14 documents in classical Arabic were found amongst his papers showing that he had maintained his Muslim faith his whole life. And some of them were even Quran. So the previous person I spoke about, Ayyub Suleiman Jallo, he actually copied the whole Quran out from memory three times and he wrote it. Um, Omar bin Said did something similar. So this is a Surah Mulk, if anyone's familiar with the Quran. In the handwriting of Omar bin Said, it was amongst his, his documents. He also had another time where he wrote Surah Ida Jaya Nasrullah wal Fat, the 103rd 
chapter of the Quran in Arabic and he told them it was the Lord's Prayer. And so <laughs> but when he passed away there were 14 documents that he left but he did die in slavery unfortunately and he wasn't allowed to return back to his country but he still maintained his history he still maintained his education and he still maintained his dignity even under the guise of converting to Christianity and assimilating into the American culture there was another person here called Yaro Mahmud and his real name was Muhammad Yaro and he was a Fulani also from Senegal and so he was significant because he also has a portrait of him so you can see these slaves were very well known and well respected amongst the society at the time because they all have portraits which only very few people had um, Yaro Mahmud had a portrait and why he is famous is because he settled in Georgetown which is now part of Washington and he became one of the first freed slaves to own his own property and he became so wealthy that he used to lend money to bankers and he had shares in the bank of Georgetown in the capital city um, Washington DC and he maintained his Islam his whole life throughout his slavery he used to pray and everybody knew that he was Muslim and when he was free one of the white people that interviewed him said he used to sit in his house that he owned himself and chant the praises of Allah and Muhammad. So up until his death, he was known as a Muslim from West Africa. And he was one of the lucky cases who were able to free themselves, buy themselves out of slavery and establish themselves in American society, owning property, lending to traders and even owning shares in one of the major banks in America. <coughs> and this man... Abdurrahman ibn Ibrahim Sori. Anybody heard of him? So there was a film made recently called Prince Among Slaves. Most Def is the narrator of the film. And this film was made about the life of this man here, Abdurrahman ibn Sori. So his grandfather was a king who had started a kingdom in Senegal. It was the Futa, uh, Futa Jalon, well, Senegal, Guinea. It was a Fulani kingdom, and so he was a prince. And before he was captured in slavery, he was actually an emir, he was a prince, and he was a commander of an army that had over 2,000 people, and they had military campaigns. So he was captured when he went on a military campaign against an opposite tribe. They captured him and sold him into slavery. And when he traveled to America, <coughs> as we already know, he was a prince. Some say he even made pilgrimage to Mecca before he was captured. And um, he wrote many documents, including a diary of how he was taken as a slave, and he narrated his own life story in his own words. So this is a portion of one of his documents that he wrote. And what's interesting about him is that he started to try and write letters back to his family in Africa. And these letters were intercepted by his master, and they were passed on and passed on until they reached President Quincy Adams. Quincy John Adams, one of the two. President Adams <laughs> saw these letters and seeing that this man was fluent in Arabic assumed he was a Moor because that's what they called all of the people that were North African, etc. They called them Moors. And so he sent the letter to the King of Morocco. And the King of Morocco asked the President of the USA to release him from slavery and send him back to Africa. So why is this important? Brief diversion. Morocco has a very, very important place in American history, and the Moroccan government and the Americans have a very, very close relationship. Does anybody come from Morocco in this lecture? Does anybody know about the history of the relationship between America and Morocco? 
So in 1777, Morocco was the first country in the world to formally acknowledge the United States as an independent nation. So this is the Emir of Morocco at the time, and this is George Washington. <clears throat> and, in 19, and in 1786, under Sultan Mohammed III, Morocco became the first African state and the first Muslim state to sign a treaty with the United States. Formal U.S. diplomatic relations with Morocco began in 1787 when the United States Senate had a treaty of peace and friendship and this treaty is still in force till today, making it the longest unbroken treaty in the, relationship, in the history of the United States. And at the end of the Civil War, the first international convention ever signed by the United States was signed as a deal with Morocco. So the Moroccan government was highly respected by the American government, and this is something that later Muslim movements in the America used to use to their advantage. And the title of being a Moor, or the term of being a Moor, was something associated with North Africa, but ignorantly placed across all Africans, North and West, who were Muslims. They just assumed that, okay, well, he speaks Arabic, he comes from Africa, so he must be a Moor. But the president <coughs> was asked by the king of Morocco at the time to release Abdurrahman from slavery, and so he did release Abdurrahman, and Abdurrahman even had an audience with John Quincy Adams, the president, in the White House before he was taken back to Africa. But he wanted to also release his wife, Isabella, and his four children from slavery, and he wasn't granted the permission to do so. And one of the conditions that the president had given him was that he had to leave America immediately to return to Africa because he feared that his being able to be freed would inspire other slaves to try the same thing and the institution of slavery in America would collapse. So he spoke to his, some of his friends in high places and tried to gather the money together to release his family from slavery. He wasn't able to release all of them. It was just him and his wife. And so him and his wife set off across the Atlantic Ocean and arrived in Liberia, leaving his four children in, behind in America. And their descendants till today still gather in his memory and talk about his... Um, his legacy. So this is also interesting because the states of Liberia and also Sierra Leone were set up as countries in Africa to host freed slaves who had managed to escape slavery back in West Africa. So anybody that looks into the history of Liberia, Sierra Leone, you'll hear about people like the Creole people. I'm Creole on my mother's side. And we're the descendants of African slaves who were released from slavery and sent back to Africa. So that's why we all have names like Roberts, Williams, Jones and Briggs. <laughs> <clears throat> and we also have this person, Eunice Mohammed Bath. So this wasn't just a phenomenon in North America, but it was also a phenomenon in the Caribbean. As many of the slaves on the island of Trinidad came from West Africa and were Mandinka in origin. Any Trinis in the house? None? Okay. So the Muslims of Trinidad had set up their own organization, <clears throat> and they even wrote letters to the king asking him to give them their own land so they can establish their own community. A lot of them were former army people who were enlisted in the army, um, the West Indian Regiment of the Army, of the British Army, and upon their army service, they were released from slavery, and they still maintained their Muslim identity, and they called themselves the Free Mandingos of... Uh, Port, what's the capital of Trinidad? 
Port of Spain, the free mandingos of Port of Spain. So you guys research him. Their commander or their emir was called Yunus Mohammed Bath. And in the 1700s, he wrote letters to King George in England requesting that they have their own land, which was something that I think was granted to them. And one of the members of this community called Mohammed Sise, who was from Gambia, actually raised enough money after his freedom to travel back to Gambia and he resettled in Gambia. So this is something, and even until today, in parts of Trinidad, Muslims are known as Mandingas. And Mandinga is the word that they use to describe Muslims. <coughs> and in places like Jamaica, for example, we also have the same story. So this is a document discovered in 1838 and it was written by a slave called Mohammed Kaba. Um, his name was Robert Pert, according to slavery records, his name was changed. And he had outwardly converted to Christianity and was an active member of the Moravian church. But they found documents that he wrote in church papers detailing prayers in Arabic. And this is actually a fiqh manual that he wrote teaching people how to pray and how to conduct prayers. And he wrote it in a church notebook. And so what's interesting about this document is that he writes it to a group or community of Muslims, showing that not only was he not the only Muslim there, but there were a community of Muslim slaves that used to still study their religion in secret and practice it in secret. So his name was Muhammad Kaba, uh, AKA Robert Pert, and his also wrote, he also wrote a slave narrative detailing how he was captured and his whole journey across the ocean and his journey in slavery in Jamaica. And these documents are still available and kept till today. And he used to correspond with another slave called Abu Bakr Sharif, whose name on the plantation was Edward Donlan. And why Abu Bakr Sharif's story is interesting is because we also see the king of Morocco intervening again to free him from slavery and return him to Africa. So Abu Bakr Sharif came from Timbuktu, which was the capital of the Mali Empire. But he descended from a family of Shurafa. So they were a Sharifan family who were the descendants of Maulai Idris, the first king of Morocco who had moved into West Africa. Most of the descendants of Prophet Muhammad in West Africa are called Sharifs, and Abu Bakr was one of them. And most of the Sharifs in West Africa are descended from Maulai Idris. So not only was he a West African Muslim scholar, but he was also the cousin of the king of Morocco. And so when it was discovered that he could read and write Arabic, he requested that he could write a letter that would be taken back to Africa. And when this letter was discovered and sent to the king of Morocco, the king of Morocco said, I know this man's family as they are part of our family, but they live in West Africa, in Bilad Sudan, the land of the blacks. And I request that you people free him from slavery. So he sent them money and they freed him. They released him and sent him back to Morocco. Well, he wasn't from Morocco, but they sent him to Morocco to meet the king of Morocco. And then from Morocco, he traveled back into Mali and resettled in Timbuktu, where he passed away amongst his own people. <clears throat> we also have this document called the Bilali Muhammad document. And this was written <clears throat> by a slave called Muhammad Bilali, who also came from West Africa. And it was, he was part of the Gullah Geechee community in Atlanta, in Georgia, sorry, not Atlanta, but in the state of Georgia in America. So this document was discovered um, amongst the documents kept by one of his great-granddaughters who released the document, and now it's kept in, I think, the National Archives of America, something like that. You know, they always take... Anyway. <laughs> it's not the time or the place. <laughs> you guys researched the Bilali Muhammad document. 
research the Gullah Geechee community because they're a very interesting community of black people who, after slavery, went into the swamps of Georgia and settled, established their own community and even developed their own language or dialect of the English language. And a lot of them were Muslim. So there was a Vice documentary about the Gullah Geechee community. If you watch that documentary, you see in the beginning they recite the Fatiha, so they open the first chapter of the Quran, but they say it in English. And a lot of them don't even identify as Muslims, but they say these are the prayers that our ancestors used to pray. So they still have remnants of Islam in their culture. And so towards the end of the 1800s, we see the end of slavery as we know it in North America. Um, All the northern states abolished slavery in 1804, and then Britain abolished slavery in 1833. The French abolished it in 1848, and then the U.S., along with the southern states, abolished it officially in 1865 with the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And this leads me to the next and final part of my presentation. So, for example, the legacy of Islam and the relationship that it has to a lot of the slaves that were taken runs very, very deep. In the Bahia revolts, a body was found with a folio around its neck, so it had a little, what we call a taweez or a document that has prayers written in Arabic in order to protect the slaves, etc. And an inscription and a prayer from the Quran was found in this folio which said, O Lord, make us Muslims in submission to you and from our descendants a Muslim nation in submission to you. And this is from the second chapter of the Quran, the 128th verse. So most of these slaves we can see that were Muslim and were not allowed to practice their religion openly. I showed you examples of slaves that, you know, were found to have been Muslim and practiced their religion. Some of them were freed, but these were just five or six amongst the hundreds of thousands that were oppressed and had to contain their religion or were not given the platform or availability to share their story with the world. But most of these slaves probably made prayers such as this for their descendants in order for Islam to rise again amongst their descendants in the Americas. And that brings us to the final segment answered prayers, which details a bit about how post-slavery Islam re-entered into the conscience of the black Americans in the north and south of America. Has anybody seen this man before? His name is there, so feel free to Google him. But this man is called Noble Drew Ali. And he was the son of freed slaves, and he was born in the late 1800s. So just after slavery is finished in the Americas, we see the birth of people like Noble Drew Ali. He was of mixed heritage, African-American and Cherokee Indian. And he claimed that in his youth, he joined a gypsy caravan, a circus caravan, where he was taken to Egypt and initiated into the secrets of ancient Egyptian magic. And he, came, and he came back to America, if he ever left, <laughs> in the early 1800s and founded a movement called the Moorish Science Temple. So as I said earlier, a lot of people used the fact that Morocco had a long-standing relationship with UK and with the UK, with the USA, I'm tired, forgive me, and used the fact that <clears throat> many Western academics described North Africans and Muslim West Africans collectively as Moors. Um, 
and they used this to form an identity for themselves. And Noble Drew Ali was one of them. So he came back with a document that he called the Circle 7 Quran. It wasn't the Quran as we know it today, but it was a book that he had collected chapters from other mystical books and wrote seven chapters of himself, declaring himself to be the prophet of God sent to the lost nation of Moors in the North American continent, a.k.a. all of the black people. So he established temples like this across America and he gained a large following of thousands of people. And he used to encourage them to wear turbans, Arab headscarves, ancient Egyptian headscarves, as we can see this man wearing here. And you can see this is one of his temples, which was in America as early as 1928. So if you guys all Google Noble Drew Ali and the Moorish Science Temple, they also tried to attain sovereignty for themselves because as we know, the Americans had a treaty with Morocco. So Moroccan people were, or Moors were not allowed to be slaves under the American system and had free and independent rights. So a lot of them attained sovereignty for themselves. They disregarded their American citizenship and they tried to claim Moorish citizenship and establish their own communities and their own country. And this is where a lot of the, a lot of the ideas that led to movements such as the Nation of Islam, etc., came from. So <clears throat> this man, Noble Drew Ali, died in 1928 or 1929, and one of his students then rose to prominence. This man here, Master Fad Muhammad. So many people do not know where he came from or who he was, but it is known that he was one of the major students of Noble Drew Ali. And so when Noble Drew Ali passed away, he picked up the mantle himself, and in 1930, he established his own movement called the Nation of Islam, which wasn't a strictly orthodox Muslim movement, but they took many ideas from Islam, such as the names like Allah, Muhammad, etc., and they established their own movement to try and bring a sense of identity to African-American Muslims in connection to their legacy as Muslims. <clears throat> so Fahd Muhammad declared himself to be Allah in person, and he appointed this man, Elijah Muhammad, to be his prophet. And in 1934, when Master Fahd Muhammad disappeared, Elijah Muhammad became the leader of the Nation of Islam. So you guys write these names down, Fahd Muhammad and Elijah Muhammad. God and the Prophet. Astaghfirullah. <laughs> <coughs> so this nation, I got 10 minutes, don't worry, I'm going to be finished soon. You guys had 10 minutes, yeah? <laughs> so Elijah Muhammad went on to become one of the most influential people in the history of Islam in the Americas as he started his nation of Islam which attracted many influential members such as Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. I have 10 minutes so I can't go into detail about the relationship between Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam, I encourage all of you to purchase his autobiography, which was written by Alex Haley, and also watch the Spike Lee film, because they all depict the story very well. But Malcolm X rose to become one of the most prominent members and a minister of the Nation of Islam in the 50s and the 60s. And then he left the nation in the 60s or the 70s and went on pilgrimage to Mecca and came back and was an Orthodox Muslim. And that's when he left the name Malcolm X to become Al-Hajj Malik Shabazz. Many people don't talk about the fact that it was his sister who had converted to Orthodox Islam in 1959, years before him, that actually sponsored his Hajj, and she was the one that paid for his funeral and took over his, um, his, his organization after he passed away. So as you research Malcolm X, research his sister as well, because she's very, very important. 
And Muhammad Ali, also, who was the world heavyweight champion of the time, I don't think he needs introduction in this lecture, right? These people led to the spread of the name of Nation of Islam and ideas and words like Allah and Muhammad across the community. And so the common narrative that we're given in the UK is that Orthodox Islam starts, uh, this is Elijah Muhammad with, testing you guys, <laughs> on point, Black History Month, I'm proud of you guys. <laughs> and so... This man passed away, Elijah Muhammad, and when he passed away, his son, Waris Din Muhammad, inherited the leadership of the community. And he did something very significant, which was the largest conversion of people to Orthodox Islam in the history of the United States, and some say even in the history of the world. Because him and 200,000 members of the Nation of Islam converted from the, the old Nation of Islam ideology into mainstream Sunni Islam. And Waris Din Muhammad established a community that still exists till today. I actually went to their masjid in Atlanta called Masjid al-Islam, where they have schools, they have businesses, they have mosques, um, and they send a lot of their community to Egypt and Syria before the war to study. And so many people feel like, or they say, classical or orthodox Islam after slavery starts with his conversion. And obviously, his father's other famous student, Farrakhan, converted to Islam, then changed his mind and decided to revive the old nation of Islam. And so you have the two factions, you had the Waris Deen community and then you had the new nation of Islam that still exists till today. But what people don't realize, and I'll end the presentation here, don't worry, and uh, <laughs> I know on time restraints, is that the same time that these pseudo-Islamic movements were happening in the United States, African-Americans were also establishing orthodox Sunni movements that are not really spoken about. People like this man, Sheikh Dawood Faisal, who established the Islamic Mission of America in 1929. So he was from the Caribbean and he moved to New York in the early 1900s. And he established, he converted to Islam and he established his own masjid called the Islamic Mission of America with his wife in the year 1929. So the same time that they were establishing the Nation of Islam on one side, he was establishing a Sunni Muslim mosque in New York on the other side. <coughs> and why this is significant is because him and his wife were both leaders in the movement and his wife used to deal with all of the women's affairs and she was a prominent teacher and she started her own schools and they were a very influential community. They had an effect on a lot of the jazz musicians at the time, many of which converted to Islam, and they also had an effect on many other people indirectly. So his motto was that blacks should reclaim their Islamic heritage and also lay claim to an American allegiance. He recognized that most African-American Muslims were most likely descended from Muslim African slaves, and so he encouraged them to embrace their heritage, which he felt was their birthright, but also be a part of the American society and lay claim to the fact that they were Americans as well. So he was one of the first people to kind of create this idea of American Islam. And although the Islamic mission originally brought together Muslim immigrants who were coming in from the Arab world and Asia at the time, and African-American converts to Islam, towards the end of the mission, as with most societal organizations, the movement split into the native immigrant community, 
the native African-American community and the immigrant Arab and Asian community who couldn't see eye to eye on a lot of issues. And so two men, Rehab Mahmoud and Abdul Karim Yahya, led a group of the African-American converts away from the State Street Mosque which he had founded and established their own mosque in Brooklyn in 1962 and set up an urban community governed under the Sharia. So what they wanted to do was create enclaves in America where they could rule by Sharia law. What was that YouTube video? Um, where the people were just like trying to enforce Sharia by force on people. <laughs> Has anyone seen that? What's it called? Sharia what? Sharia Patrol. So they basically set up <laughs> Sharia Patrol. You guys can Google that as well. We're not all like that, but Google it anyway. And they set up a similar movement in the 60s in America and it was called Darul Islam. And what was significant is because people like this man here, H. Rap Brown, who was a prominent civil rights activist and member of the Black Panthers Party, he served as the Minister of Justice in the Black Panthers Party, converted to Islam through the influence of this Darul Islam movement. And he's now known today as Imam Jamil Alameen. Um, I'm sure many of you have heard the name. If you haven't, Google it, because I don't have enough time to talk about him. <coughs> and then in 1978, a Pakistani sheikh called Sayyid Mubarak Ali Jailani started to preach in the Islamic Center in New Jersey. So he moved from Pakistan to America to give dawah, to call people to Islam. And many of the leaders of this Darul Islam movement decided to follow this Sheikh, Sheikh Jailani. Um, and so in 1980, Abdul Karim abdicated his leadership of the Darul Islam movement to follow Jailani, and then the movement fractured. And then they went on to form their own group called the Muslims of America. So why this is significant is because the idea that they had of establishing their own communities in the inner city um, that ran by Sharia law was encouraged by the Sheikh Jailani. But he said, you can't establish these communities within the city. You guys have to gather your resources and establish your own towns and villages where you can rule by your own rules outside of the city. And so we see cities springing up across America such as Holy Islamburg <laughs> and Holy Islamville, where thousands of African-American followers of Jailani set up their own towns, bought their own land, built their own houses, and set up their own communities. And these communities still exist till today. So Holy Islamburg is in, New York, is in the state of New York, and Holy Islamville is in Carolina. You can see they did a Fox News report on <laughs> And hundreds of thousands of African Americans live in these communities who have been descendants of people who are part of the Nation of Islam or, you know, the Darul Islam movement. And so you can see in these communities fourth and fifth generation African American Muslims whose narrative is not really spoken about and nobody really knows. I didn't even know about this until I married one of them. So my wife actually grew up in holy... Islamburg. <laughs> she's not in the picture because usually she's here, so I point her out and she gets embarrassed. But she went to the Summer Walker concert. Anyway, <laughs> and um, yeah, this is a side of Islam in America that people don't usually talk about. So a lot of these African Americans went to Pakistan to study. Um, my mother in law studied in Pakistan as my father in law did and many others. And a lot of them are fluent in Urdu. 
um, as well as speaking English and Arabic. And they graduate from their own schools. They, they all have their own schools. They have their own madrasas. They have annual summer camps, etc. And so the legacy and history of Malcolm X, if spoken about, shouldn't be just spoken about in terms of his own personal journey to Islam. But Malcolm X himself represents a legacy of Islam in America that has been there for over, we can say, or up to 700 years. And I hope that I've given you guys a nice kind of introduction or crash course so you guys can do your own further research into this topic. My name is Mustafa Briggs. This is my email and this is my social media. Please feel free to take pictures and videos so I can repost them on Instagram. And thank you for listening to me ramble for an hour. Mustafa, thank you so much for that insightful journey of um, Islam in, in the Americas. I'm really pleased to say that at the LSE we have an incredible history of um, progressive thinkers. If you, know, if you didn't know, um, Malcolm X was here in 1965 giving a lecture of this nature, and Malcolm, um, uh, Muhammad Ali was also here in 1971. So, uh, yeah, you're, you're in, good, uh, in good company there. And I also think this might be the first all-black panel in terms of delivery and uh, speakers, which is also some history. <laughs> so I'm loving this right now, too. I'm okay. you're making history. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so now we're going to open up to the floor. Um, please do keep your questions brief. Um, Make it a question, please, not a statement. And uh, I'll group them together. So I'll take maybe three, four at a time, and then we'll uh, hear from Mustafa. So we'll start with the gentleman over here. Hello, please introduce yourself as well. Yeah, uh, my name is Rami uh, Cheblak. I'm an LSE alumnus. Uh, I wanted to thank you for the talk. Really informative um, for, for me. And as you alluded to, I think this history is overlooked um, in a lot of mainstream narratives. And, and so it's great. This, this kind of event is great to raise the profile of it, I, th uh, I think. Um, but I had a question for you as the descendant of Arab Muslims. Um, which was, you know, you present quite a romanticized almost vision of um, a marriage between Islam and black history. But my question for you was, and you also talked about how the Moroccan king had, had a role in liberating slaves. My question was, with the spread of Islam to West Africa, was there not some slavery that came, that went with that as well? Did the Arabs not themselves enslave, um, you know, black Africans as well? Uh, any other questions? Hello, Yes, the front here. Is it true or not? Uh, is it true or not that the intertribal fights also led to uh, one tribe selling slaves to the white people? Yes. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen in the back there. What DNA mapping has happened between black Muslims in America and Muslims in West Africa? Thank you. DNA mapping, great. We'll take last one of this batch, gentlemen at the back there. Yeah, you with your hand up. Ahmadiyya? Of like other sects of Islam. Okay, other sects. Um, other sects. Okay, cool. Other sects, yeah? Cool. So that's it for now. Is you that it go? for now? Yeah. Okay. In terms of the Arab slavery, Islam in West Africa, so I do cover this in my previous lecture, Beyond Bilal, um, Black History um, and Islam. And the Arab slave trade is very complicated because the Arabs were part of a trading network that previously existed within West Africa and also 
they were included in it. But I wouldn't say Islam in West Africa was spread through slavery and them enslaving people. Because a lot of the narratives that we have, so for example, the two largest nations in West Africa in the 1011th century, 1035, we see the king of Takurur in Senegal converting to Islam. And then 1037, we see Warjabi. No, Warjabi converts first, king of Takrur, and then Kaya Magasise converts to Islam in the Ghana Empire. The Ghana Empire has a capital city that has two towns. One town inhabited by Muslims, the other town where the king lives. The town that's inhabited by Muslims has 12 mosques. The town where the king lives, they were animists, they practiced traditional Islamic, the traditional African religions, but they lived side by side and they didn't really have war or enslave each other and so that's why the king was then influenced to convert to Islam but he didn't impose Islam on the rest of the nation it's through education etc that Islam started to spread in the Ghana Empire which later becomes the Mali Empire Takrur we see the same thing the king establishes Sharia law but he doesn't convert force anybody to convert but amongst these kingdoms the practice of slavery already existed before Islam and after Islam um, obviously Islam if you look at the legal structure of it it doesn't get rid of slavery, but it adjusts it, and you know that's something for the for the scholars to talk about in their own time. But the Arabs then were part of a network of people that were already trading slaves, and then they added to that. In East Africa, we see like the slavery from Oman and all of those places is much more vicious than it is in West Africa. It's still a history that I feel needs to be looked at and broken down and spoken about. And even, for example, this is something that's not usually spoken about, but like Ayubo Suleiman Jalo, before he was captured as a slave, he was selling slaves to white people, and then he goes to war and gets captured himself. So you can see it was a part and parcel of the society, not to justify it, but just to to bear in mind that it wasn't the Arabs that brought slavery to Africa. They engaged in it in a system that was already in place. And even non-Muslim kingdoms like Dahomey and Benin, they have a long history. And the Yoruba kingdoms, they have a long history. And Igbo kingdoms even, my dad's Igbo as well. And they were also slave traders. So like on my father's side, his grandfather was a king and his grandfather was a slave trader. And then on my mother's side, they're descended from slaves. So, you know... It's complicated. Yeah, it's very complicated. Mm. But he was a king and he used to sell slaves to white people. So it's like <coughs> slavery in Africa is something in general that needs to be studied more and looked at um, on all sides. In terms of inter-tribal inter -tribal slaves, yeah, so I think I covered that. As in inter-tribal wars would lead to them capturing prisoners of wars and they didn't have prisons to keep them in. They'll just sell them as slaves and take the money. And so that's how slavery was fueled. But I do feel that this is something that a lot of people use to remove the blame from Westerners as well and say, well, you know, they didn't capture slaves, they were just buying slaves. No, 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 they were out here kidnapping people, capturing slaves, <laughs> selling weapons to kings and encouraging them mm. to start wars so they could get slaves. And so they played, uh, they fueled it and they played a very, very big part in it. Um, so, yeah, still blame the white man. Um, <laughs> DNA mapping. <laughs> I don't know about large-scale DNA mapping being done on, on African-American Muslims to discover where they came from. But I do know that a lot of African-American Muslims have done, you know, the swab tests, etc., and they've traced their, their ancestry back to Muslim and non-Muslim tribes in West Africa. But that's something that I don't know if a complete study has been done on. And other sects. So I'm still doing research on it. In terms of what I know so far, there was the Sunni Muslims, like Sheikh Daoud, Faisal, etc. And then there was the Nation of Islam and the Moorish Science Temple who 
mainstream Muslims don't even consider Muslim, but that's not a debate I'm willing to go into here. And there's also a presence of an Ahmadiyya community, but I'm still doing research in that. So until I research it properly, I won't feel comfortable putting it in there until I have all of the information. Like with the Dar Islam movement, my father-in-law's father was one of the main founding members of the movement. So that's how I have like information about their movement. And then with the Sheikh Jilani um, movement as well, Muslims of America, my father-in-law was a very prominent member of the community. Um, a lot of my in-laws are still part of the community and live on those lands in Holy Islamville and Islamburg. <laughs> so, you know, I have more access to that information than information about other sects. And then, okay. Yeah, that's, the, that's, that's those questions. Fantastic. All right, so any more questions? One more round of questions. So, yes, maybe in the yellow hijab. Yeah, you can speak. Speak up. Um, I was just wondering about Islam, religion, and identity formation because it was really fast, but you mentioned that um, there was a quote, blacks should reclaim their Islamic heritage and also they came to an American allegiance that I found really, really interesting. Yeah. At the same time, was it, was it simultaneous where there were things like the Sharia enclaves happening where actually there's this connection from American allegiance where Muslim return into themselves. So there's like outward accepting your Islamic identity and let's say American identity so we're both Muslim Americans. Yeah. This is an issue that we're having in Europe too. European Muslim Muslim European I don't know about UK but um, so is that is that how did that go exactly? Like did it happen simultaneously? How was the dynamic? Okay. Oh, so question on identity. Any other questions from the crowd? Yes. Um, why were slaves that spoke Arabic fluently so valued by slave traders in Western countries specifically? Like, why wasn't the Western African languages um, given the same kind of importance? Okay. <coughs> All right, I think we'll end it there. Go for it. Okay, so with the question about the identity and the identity formation, different communities had different approaches. So it wasn't even a simultaneous approach and it wasn't an approach that everybody agreed with. So for example, places, um, communities like Sheikh Dawood Faisal's community, Sheikh Dawood Faisal preached that yes, you can be Muslim and American at the same time, use all your rights available that you have as an American and then integrate that with being Muslim. So he encouraged a lot of the people that were part of his community to join the army, a lot of them you know, had mainstream jobs and a lot of them were looking for ways to kind of elevate their status <coughs> in society. Where that differed was in the split. So you see in the 60s, the group that split and later became Darul Islam didn't agree with that. And they felt that Sheikh Dawood Faisal, because he opened his community to not just African-American converts, but immigrant Arab and Asian Muslims that were now being allowed into the country due to the amendments that happened in the laws due to the civil rights movement. So that's another thing that I need to talk about as well. One of my friends did a, uh, his master's degree on that, where African-American Muslims led to the acceptance of Muslims from other places being allowed into America and being allowed to practice their religion. Um, so, but his community was that uh, everyone is involved, whereas some people were more radical and they felt that, no, we as African-Americans have our own separate needs, we have our own identity that these people don't understand, and so we need to form our own communities. And that's where the split happened. The Nation of Islam have the same concept. They, their concept was we need to split away from society and form our own communities, have our own land, control our own economics, build our own schools and be a system within the system rather than a part of the mainstream system. So it wasn't simultaneous and 
they didn't all and the Moorish science temple they didn't even want to be American they wanted to be Moors and they created their own their own passports I mean one of my barbers in America he's a Moor so he's like I'm not American I don't have an American passport and he has a document that shows him being liberated from being an American yeah. and independent status as a Moor and yeah it's, it's crazy he can't travel anywhere but <laughs> <laughs> he's there and then why were slaves that spoke Arabic so highly valued because the justification that a lot of Westerners used to enslave Africans were that they were subhuman and they were illiterate and they hadn't developed their own cultures and they hadn't developed their own languages and they were being civilized and educated and exposed to the light of Western civilization and Christianity. That's why they needed to be captured and taken and, and, and made slaves. And so when you saw slaves that spoke Arabic, Westerns already had, for example, in America, you saw the relationship they had with the Moroccan government where they respected Arabs already, even if they didn't agree with them. It was before 9-11, before what we know today where Arabs were seen as an equivalent nation. You know, they were Semitic, they had their own alphabet, they had their own culture, they have their own kingdoms. And so slaves that spoke Arabic were seen by the ignorant Westerners as probably being Moors or having a connection to North African or Arab kingdoms. And that's why they were valued. And also because the fact that you can read and write, because most African nations don't have their own alphabets. They have oral transmission. And so there's only a few, like, ethics in Nigeria have their own alphabet. There was a king in Cameroon that developed his own alphabet as well. But in general, in West Africa, when it comes to literature and literacy, most of the literature and literacy was in Arabic. And if it wasn't in Arabic, they developed a system called Ajami, where they took Arabic script to read and write African languages. And so for them, in their mind, Africans all lived in trees and in jungles, and they didn't have any civilizations. So when you saw African slaves that could read and write and were literate, and you know they forbade slaves from reading and writing in America. Um, if you watch Roots, you'll be able to see some of that. They were valued, and also because a lot of these people, in order for them to have been educated, they came from noble families, they came from wealthy families, and so they weren't just valued for their literacy, but they were valued for their skills. So we saw, for example, Abu Bakr Sharif, he used to do bookkeeping for his slave master, because his slave master was illiterate, but he was literate in Arabic, so he'll keep all the books and accounts of the plantation in Arabic and that's how it was discovered that he could read and write Arabic and with a lot of these other ones they were copying out whole Qur'ans from memory and doing all of this and they had skills so this one guy was a commander of an army so he could co he could organize the plantation properly they had skills in growing crops they had skills in animal rearing and all of that and so that's why they were valued um, highly and they were thought of as being exotic and these were the slaves that were brave enough to show their slave masters that they were literate because other slaves could clearly see other slaves being punished for reading and writing and all of this so a lot of them would probably conceal their identities so for the five or six that we know that did reveal themselves there are probably thousands of others that that didn't yeah. amazing well please join me again to thank Mustafa Briggs for the incredible